you know, a lot of times love is conditional when it comes to humanity. It's um, if I can get this out of you. Yeah, my loyalty is for you. My love is for you. But once you mess, mess, mess up my my trust for you, that's it. I'm done with you. That's not how it is with God. We grieve him when we sin. We, we mess up and it causes a sorrow. But he has given us an inheritance. He has given us a promise. He is faithful to his word, even when we're not. Because I be worried about yourself. Why you still be doubting you got a soul? Like you need to see to believe these things. But you believe things that you've never seen. Like feelings and hopes and dreams. The future emotions and gravity. And sadly, everything you're rejecting makes this whole life a tragedy. And I got something to say. I got something to say. I got something to say to the world. And I got Welcome to the Milk and Meat Podcast. I'm Andrew, and I have my brother with me today. Carlos. And we are going to have a, or we're going to try to do a discussional episode on the idea of the perseverance of the saints. So Carlos, what is the definition of perseverance? Perseverance uh, defined by dictionary.com. If you'll allow me to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, perseverance means continuing uh, to persevere, to, to not give up, to, to not stop uh, in whatever you are doing. And the idea of salvation has, throughout church history, been something opposed by some people as if it is an eternal thing, which kind of is odd because it is an eternal life given. Right. Um, but some people think, you know, they, that eternity only begins after you die. But salvation is never described as being something that only becomes qualitatively eternal after you die. It's eternal the moment you have it. It is an eternal existence of knowing God. This is eternal life that they know you, uh, Father, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent. This is, this is eternal life. Um, so we wanted to compile several verses, some sections of scripture, some discussion and dialogue. Uh, I'm using a few... Um, historical church documents because like like you said carlos it is a big enough issue to worry that you can lose your salvation that scripture even points to it and it's a big enough issue in the church that there have been massive collections of documents created and made to oppose the false view that you can actually lose your salvation mm -hmm. what what i see is the issue is some people oppose it because they think that the idea of once saved, always saved means once you're saved, you can live like a devil and you're still saved. Yeah. But that's not what the perseverance of the saints is. That's not what the continued foreverness of salvation for those that are believers means. It, In fact, Paul actually does a really good job in Romans, which is like the exposition of all things salvation, um, where he explains in chapters six and seven, where if if you would try to dishonor grace by trying to live in sin, how could you? Like, God forbid that. The idea of, oh, okay, so grace, cool, I got grace, so I can just sin. Why? Because then I can just ask for forgiveness and we're all good. Right. The idea of I can now do wrong because there's a promise of forgiveness is not a Christian idea. It's a very pagan idea. It's an unchristian. It's an it's a God hating. It's a God disrespecting idea. Like oh, you know, that's like saying I'm married, and we know that marriage is for life, so I can sin against my wife, and she's not gonna divorce me. Mm -hmm. It's like that. That doesn't give me any right to dishonor and disrespect my wife just because there's an, 
a forever concept to marriage. So where, where do you, where did you want to touch on? Well, um, go, going back to what you were saying about the fact, the fact that, that, that we talk about eternal security, eternal salvation, it, a lot of people take that as you say, well, if I'm saved, I'm always saved. Well, <laughs> Here, here I go. You know, I'm gonna yeah. live the, my life however I want because in the end, God is God is gonna forgive me anyway. But that's something that Paul talks about. He he uh, he um, corrects in Romans six one, where he says, "What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase?" And he says, "No, far far from it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it?" Like that. That's that's. That's the point that we're that we're making. Talking about persevering, perseverance and the perseverance of the saints, the Bible has a lot to talk about uh, when it comes to that. And it's not one of those things where we, and I'm, I'm going to repeat again, it's not one of those uh, once saved, always saved, now I can live my life however, however I want. That's actually a very false way of looking at the scriptures. Um, and I'm going to go straight into Revelation 2, 7, um, which says the one who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And we understand that overcoming that that's so that's something that, that happens when we're reconciled with Christ. And we're only reconciled with Christ through Christ. We're only reconciled to God through the saving work of Jesus Christ. It is not something that we've done. It is not something that we can earn. It is not a work from us. It's something that has already been done and was already um, done since the beginning, since the foundation of, of the world. Um, going into Colossians 1.22. This is a confidence that we should have as Christians, uh, which says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly, established and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So we can see that we have been reconciled through Christ, with Christ, and and this is where, where indeed we can prove ourselves to be reconciled, and, and not prove ourselves in the fact that if I do so much work, then I can prove myself to be saved. No, this is not a work of myself. But we can see, at least in these two verses, where and, and throughout Scripture, where it should be, it must be a common, I, I don't know what the right word is, a, a consensus amongst all Christians that those who are truly saved are those who have persevered, are those who, who persevere until the end, believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. what, I, what I see is that if we just take this section, like you mentioned, Colossians 1, 22 to 23, it, it gives... It gives a description that we need to be able to break down with more than just people telling us what it means. Right. Uh, it says, yet he has now reconciled you. So he's at this moment already reconciled you. 
if indeed you continue. So what's mm-hmm. it, like at this moment you stand as an already reconciled person. So Christ has done this and now this is your condition if the future looks like this for you. It, it's as if people think yet he will in the future reconcile you if you continue in the faith. No, we're, we're talking about a past tense and mm-hmm. then a, a, a future ex, um, manifestation of it. Like the, the, the evidence of your salvation is that you are someone that is continuing in the faith. Right. That's like the, the evidence of the fact that you're, you were born and you're not a stillborn is the fact that you have a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth birthday. Mm-hmm. Like you're continuing in this life. No matter what pitfalls, trials you encounter in your physical body, the fact that proves that whether or not when you were born, you were born, is that you didn't have a grave assigned to you. Like you actually continue on in life. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, this is what this is saying. The f- he has reconciled you. He's brought you to a new life. And the evidence will be that you are indeed living it mm-hmm. later on. It doesn't matter how tattered, how messed up, how faulty it is. If you are still a believer later on, even if you fall into some stupid decision or sin and, and you come out of it and you are continuing in your faith, even through stumblings and falls, you are proven to really have put your faith in Christ and he really did reconcile you in the earlier times. So if people just evaluate some of these simple verses, these sections, it, it, it could be evaluated with, with a lot of positive clarity. Yeah. I just think a lot of people look at it like, oh, no, look, if means it all depends on me. It's like, no, there is this aspect where we are a part of this process of growing in our faithfulness, but not in growing in our salvation mm-hmm. necessarily. Like salvation is an entirely by God right. done thing sanctification we are commanded to grow in but even that is empowered and enabled by the spirit it's yeah. you know it's him who works in you to do and to will for his good pleasure yeah i just think a lot of people don't ever take time to really consider that well the the uh, uh another way of looking at it is um and and i'm gonna i'm probably gonna botch the terminology um and the way of of defining it so maybe you can put it in better terms um but we are reconciled so we are saved. We are saved now. If indeed we prove ourselves, we are then being saved continually mm-hmm. from sin. And then in the end, we're going to be ultimately saved. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's, it's, we've been saved already. And, and, and salvation isn't something that uh, this, this was a former belief of mine where it's, I'm right with God right now. I sin tomorrow. So now I've lost my salvation, and yeah. then I ask for forgiveness, so he gives it back to me, and then I mess up again, so he removes the Holy Spirit from me, and then I ask for forgiveness, yeah. and it's just an ongoing cycle. That, that's not it at all. I've already been reconciled with God through the work of Jesus Christ. My sanctification, on the other hand, that's a lifelong process that I'm never going to reach perfection on this side of heaven. Mm-hmm. Not until I die and the Lord blows the trumpet and we all are, we're all risen up in, uh, with Christ and we receive the glorified body. Yeah. But this is an ongoing work. Salvation has, is there. Sanctification is an ongoing work. Yeah. There's a, through scripture, there's the, uh, you've been saved aspects then there's teaching saying we are being saved Mm -hmm. and then there's that future like you said aspect of we will finally see the fulfillment of our salvation and it doesn't again mean Mm -hmm. that you know salvation isn't a completed 
act and a completed thing. Jesus did not say, it is kind of finished. He said, it is finished. Everything that needed to be done to save a soul has been completely accomplished on the cross. So yeah. all those that are called to be, elected to be, will be given by the Father to the Son. All those that are ordained for salvation will come to that saving faith in various various ways. Um, so when we're saved, it is indeed from what is it, from the condemnation of sin when we are being saved, it's from the power of sin, and when we will finally be saved in the end, it's going to be from the presence of sin. So right now, anyone that puts their trust in Jesus Christ, they're saved, they're, they're freed from the condemnation. They're no longer uh, having that penalty of sin laid over their head, not eternally. Circumstantially, you might commit a sin and there's consequences that follow in life. God will chastise. You might end up suffering some social consequences, some relational consequences. You might receive some sort of rebuke from God. But that is a father chastising his children. So just like, uh, where is it? Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1 should be really read by a lot of people. Um, yeah. Romans, in general, should be yeah. read by a lot of people. Just read the whole entire letter of Romans. It is a chapter 1 to 16 uh, exposition on all things salvation is beautiful. But Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the beautiful chapter that goes in even further. We can see Romans 8.38-39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not the, uh, the, the, the gooey, emotional, ooh, lovey-dovey love. We're talking about the kind of love that God has always described to have been given, an act of love, a love which always relates to the cross of Christ. Every time we see, especially in the New Testament, the love of God referenced, it's always in, there's something preceding, there's something following that verse that talks about Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. It's never like, oh, he feels so good about us. God doesn't feel good about sinners. Mm -hmm. He's angry with the wicked every single day. And until we come to Christ and are reconciled, we are deemed wicked. We are enemies of God. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. So we are not coming to God saying, I know how, how good you feel about me. God doesn't feel good about any sin. Uh, and he doesn't separate the sinner from the sin entirely. Some people say, oh, you know, God loves the sinner, uh, hates the sin. I'm like, the sinner sins. <laughs> Like his actions, mm -hmm. the Bible doesn't say God is angry with uh, sinful things every day. God is angry with the wicked, yeah. the people who are wicked every single day. The people are enemies towards God. But in that, that ability for God to be offended and to oppose sin, he still sacrificially acted towards the good and benefit of the other party. So that is the love of God. It's sacrifice. Yeah. He sends Jesus to die on the cross for those that deserve to die on the cross. So he gives of himself. He sacrifices. That's the love of God. And that's the love that isn't separated. That active, um, that, that, that love which accomplishes something good for the other person as a, sacrifice, a sacrificial thing, that's the love that a, a believer isn't separated from. The the forgiving, atoning, propitiatory love of God in Christ on behalf of sinners that put their faith in Jesus, that love doesn't break for anything, not principalities, not life, not death, mm -hmm. not nothing, no powers, no devil, no nothing can separate us from the active, effectual love of God. Yeah. And, and that's why Romans 8.1 says, 
There is now, at this moment, mm -hmm. pertaining to the life of every believer, there is no condemnation. There's no future condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that has to take into account the fact that 30 verses later, 37 verses later, we're going to have this explanation. Like, just a summary saying, I said it, there's no condemnation, and here's how much can't get in the way of that. Nothing, not mm -hmm. angels, not demons, not nothing. So I, I think people should really study what the, what the Bible has available to teach them about the entirety of salvation. Some people look at just the, the rules, like do this, do that, uh, mm -hmm. don't mess up. It's like that's such a, such a weighty, burdensome perspective, which should be coming out of a heart of obedience, which, which is grateful instead of one that's fearing condemnation. You can't, you can't say, I trust the promises that God has made me and then be afraid that you're going to fail so bad that God's not going to keep you if you're his. That's not promising. That's not trusting the promises. Yeah. That's, that's thinking God's still evaluating if you're good enough. But the Bible says no one's good, not mm -hmm. even one. Everyone is wicked. All fall short of the glory of God, the standard. So we're either depending on our goodness or we're depending on the goodness of another. And Christians are supposed to depend on the goodness of Jesus and the death penalty that Jesus paid, not on their own goodness or their own consistency. Yeah, and and that's that's where uh, it's important for us to understand. The, the, and all of this goes back to to uh, a lot of the former episodes that that you've uh, recorded uh, when it comes to the attributes of God, how they're always on display, ever yeah. going on 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 display. His wrath, his love, his jealousy, all of it is. And in, in Psalms we read that he hates wickedness. Mm -hmm. He hates those who 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 do. Uh, uh, wickedness um and then romans tell, tells us however god demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we while we were yet sinners christ died for us yeah. so he hated us yet he demonstrates his love towards us in in that he sent his son to die for us to create that pathway to 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 do all that needed to be done nothing on our part no sacrifice, no nothing mm -hmm. on our part. It was all Christ. Um, in, in Psalm 51, uh, this is known as the prayer after David sinned with Bathsheba. Um, and this is, goes into it. Uh, Psalm 51, 11, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David had already sinned. So in, in the eyes of many of those who believe that you can lose your salvation, that he, he was no longer in good standing with God. The spirit would have been done away with. However, he says, he, currently in sin, asking for forgiveness, he says, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And that's where sin that's what sin does to the believer. It causes us sorrow. It causes us, uh, it damages us. It, it, it causes us to be so sad that we've done the very thing that sent our Savior to the cross. Mm -hmm. However, it doesn't cause God to turn us away. It, it doesn't cause God to remove his spirit from us. We can see it in David's prayer. He, he himself said, don't take the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. away from me. In other words, he, he still had it. Mm -hmm. It was still intact. Why? Because Ephesians tells us that the Holy Spirit is the, is the first installment of our inheritance, right? 
God's installment. God's some people, installment. Yeah, some people like make it seem like, yeah, it's it's a it's an investment and I'm investing into God my faith and commitments. Like this is this has nothing to do with you. Yeah. Ephesians 1 13, 14 says, In him you also, first off, everything about Ephesians one is about in Christ, yeah. in Christ, in Christ, in God. Um, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So who is given? So the Holy Spirit is not a it. It's, it's a thing. It's not a, just a powerful little pledge, a little thing that makes you feel good. It's literally who is. He is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the is a third person of the, of the Godhead. Somehow in God's mysterious nature, he has a Father, Son, Spirit aspect to himself which be, which is beyond anything else we can truly comprehend but there is an ongoing simultaneous interrelationship within god uh, father son and spirit and the father and son send him the holy spirit to dwell in our hearts to convict us to confront us to sanctify us to work out in us and also to be that present comfort and that present promise that's always welling up unto eternal life leading us to be able to say abba father to be able to say um my god my king and and if this is god saying you were sealed in him with the holy spirit of promise who is given given by god mm -hmm. as a pledge it's god's promise to fulfill his payment he doesn't take back any of his promises he keeps them yeah. so if he promised it he's not saying you know here's a down payment don't lose it He's, he's saying, here's my down payment. I promise to bring you all the way through. We have to keep that in mind. But when we're taught and, and scriptures use the wrong way, we're taught like, hey, now don't mess it up. Look at how precious this promise is. Like, if you mess it up, he's going to take it back. It's like the, we're, we're, we're teaching wrong about the character and the promises of God when we do that. So it's not a small thing to say you can lose your salvation. It, it would be right to say you can... Um, you can dishonor God. You can uh, even trap yourself in some sin. You can you can uh, damage your growth and sanctification. Absolutely, you can you can you can ruin a lot of aspects of your own faith and mm -hmm. experience. But because your entire faith does not depend on you, it, it is important for us to know that God is always able and willing and is bringing us out of that now. That isn't to say, hey, you're caught in sin, it's fine. That, that that shouldn't be the way someone even handles sin. It shouldn't be like, oh, it's okay, you know, God's not going to ditch you, so just, you know, just do better. No, like, repent quickly, immediately. The minute that there's any level of conviction in someone's heart that he's doing or she's doing something wrong against God, don't wait for it to not feel as bad. Don't wait for someone else to come with a long expository sermon to explain that it's wrong. You have the conviction. The Spirit is giving it to you. The Bible is teaching it. Repent immediately, yeah. quickly to honor God because he, he should be the one that we want to honor. Uh, we're going to fail, but somehow in this mysterious way, God is always reminding his people of their sins. And it's not like this crippling reminder. It's not like this, oh, like if it's, if we couple the reminder that God gives us through conviction, and we also add that to the voice of some of the teachers that have this condemning attitude towards Christians, it might feel like a con 
condemning experience to sense the conviction of God. Because we'll feel a conviction and be like, oh man, I did that wrong. And then we're remembering that our pastors or preachers or whoever it is teaching us saying, hey, if you've done this and you've sinned this way, you're about to lose it. You're going to add the mm-hmm. truth of God's conviction to the lie of a, uh, of a teacher that's misteaching or teaching error or teaching heresy. And you're going to start thinking, God is condemning me. But that's not who God is and that's not what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's convicting you. He's bringing about proper conviction. Um, but that's, that's why I think it's incredibly important that we teach this right, because it actually teaches about God. Yeah. It teaches about his promise. And if someone's teaching wrong about God, then you're going to, if it's like in your church and they're teaching that wrong, any visitor you bring, you're basically bringing them into possible future destroying condemn, uh, condemnation or condemning feelings about the sacrificing, loving God of the universe who saves sinners all the way through. And he doesn't give up. He doesn't drop the ball. He never does anything like that. Yeah. And you're going to bring them under that teaching saying, hey, I know you're a sinner and you're going to mess up, but don't mess up. I'm a <laughs> sinner. I'm not going to be free of that till glory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How can I tell you not to mess up? I can tell you, don't don't excuse your mess-ups. Grow in your faithfulness. Learn and mature. And Christians usually later on are a lot more quick to confess, quick to repent. Faithful Christians. We're not talking about the false ones that get proud and boastful later on and all that. We're talking about Christians. Little by little, they become more able to forgive, more able to be patient. And, 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 and just the sincerity of their faith grows tenfold in a 20, 30-year span of their walk with God, because God has brought them through a lot. Not just that God has brought them through trouble and now they're all better, there's no trouble. No, God has brought them through their own sin, their own failures, and has brought about a level of perfection in them, in their hearts, and their attitude, and their demeanor, that they are now more faithful than they were before. That's, that's the process of sanctification. God is cleaning up your sin more and more until the day of glory. But some people are just trying to avoid the existence of sin. Like, oh, I shouldn't mess up. You shouldn't. Yeah. But you but will. Going to. Yeah. <laughs> like, be mindful of that. Yeah. Yeah. And and that that's a level where 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 a lot of us want to want to reach holiness. Um, and it's important to be holy. The Bible tells us be holy because the Lord your God is holy. He's a holy God. But we need to understand that we're not perfect. Well, although in righteousness and 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 surrounded and emerged and drowned in Christ, we're still not perfect, and we're going to sin. In fact, Ephesians Ephesians um, four tells us that we um, that it is possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit, and that happens when we sin. That's exactly what happens when we sin. We grieve the Holy Spirit, and the it's possible to grieve to grieve God, to get us in a place where we've messed up, sometimes willingly, mm-hmm. most of the time willingly. It's yeah. not that the devil's holding a gun to our head and to sin now. No, it's us. We, it, we have free will. We have free will. And that's what we do with it. Yeah, <laughs> we choose to sin. Yeah. Many times, my most of the time, 100% of the time, my flesh doesn't want to read the Bible. My flesh doesn't want to pray. My flesh doesn't want to submit to the word of God. My spirit does. Mm-hmm. But me being stupid, I, I listen to my flesh a lot more. And that's where I, I I become sorrowful. I get on my knees and I pray and 
And every day, well, we talked about it in the last episode. Every day, I'm like, God, I'm sorry. Like, it's a true sorrow that comes over me. But then there's that comfort that comes over me. Where it's like, hey, we're, we're going to be all right, you know. But grieving the Holy Spirit, that's what, that's what sin does. It causes us to grieve our God. Like, it, I don't know, that's wild to me. There's a quote by Paul Washer that says, Grace enough would have been if God would have kept us out of hell for a little while. Not even it brings us into his presence, but keeps us out of hell for a little while. Yet he's kept us out altogether and mm-hmm. has brought him in, brought us in with himself, um, has made us righteous. Um, but what that to me, being able to say or, or, or saying that we can lose our salvation, it causes us to do a few things. We're, we're calling God a liar, mm-hmm. and we're saying then that he's not even God anymore because God doesn't lie. So yeah. if we're calling him a liar, Jesus tells us that nothing can snatch, it, snatch us out of his hand. Yeah. Nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. They are one in this. They are united in this. They are, they, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all together in this, bringing us into uh, uh, salvation, persevering us to the end. Um, Philippians, I lost it. Philippians one six one six says, "For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus." He who began the work, we didn't begin the work. This has nothing to do with us. If any part we have in this, it's as we've said, the sin that we bring into. We bring the sin. He brings the cure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Like that, that's the only part that we have in it. The only yeah. part that I have is drowning. He yeah. is the ark of my salvation. Mm-hmm. He brings me through the waters and the roaring ocean of sin in himself. Yeah. He's the ark. If some walk away, take heart. Mm-hmm. The Lord knows that yeah. those that are his, like we have that, that confidence that if someone walks away, just like the verse you were talking about, first John, it, it shows that they're their character wasn't in line with God in the first place. Uh, Matthew 13, it's Jesus talking about the different kinds of soils. Mm-hmm. How many churches are teaching that, you know, you can be the, the fourth soil, the good one, but don't become the first soil, right. don't become the second soil. It's like, that's not, what the, that's not what the parable is talking about. It's describing four different people. And whichever one you are, the fourth one doesn't change into any other ones. Maybe some people initially might look the f- like the first three mm-hmm. and might even act like it. They might later on get saved. But there's only one that is actually saved. Everyone else is a hypocrite in varying degrees. You got the first one. It's the highway. Seed falls. The person just like comes to church with his hands closed. Mom took me to Easter service. I don't want to hear a word. Just bounces off that person. Doesn't even come a little bit into their heart. They don't want it. Then you got the second one, you got rocks and stuff. It looks good, sounds good. Oh, what? Really? Really? Jesus is going to solve all my problems? Yeah, I'll take that, Jesus. Then the problem doesn't get solved. He's like, nah, I'm out of here. Yeah. Then the third one is a thorny soil. Man, like, I, I want this. I want these promises. I want these good things. And then they're, they're there. But then they get worried or they get obsessed with worldly riches or some sort of other endeavor. And Jesus is no longer the one they're looking for as their foundation because he never was their foundation. They're looking for one more thing because mm-hmm. Jesus wasn't enough. And the only way that Jesus isn't enough to someone is if they don't take Jesus. There's no way that you stand on the living King of Kings, the rock of life, the rock of all things, and then ever find any shakiness to it and say, 
this is kind of shaky. It's not sturdy enough. You stand on the rock, you're not going to ever, ever move. The only way for someone to actually walk away from Jesus is if they never actually stood on yeah. that truth. It's for them to be next to it, look at it, point at it, take a picture and snapshot with it, but they're never actually standing on him. He's the yeah. firmest of all things. And, and then there's the fourth soil, produces fruit. There's only one in all those four soils that's saved. But little by little, sometimes the three soils look like it. You got the one that shows up to church. If he walks out of that building, even though he crossed his arms the whole time, someone might say, hey, I saw Jojo there. Man, I didn't know Jojo was a Christian. What an assumption. Yeah. <laughs> and then you see the other person comes to the altar, balls his tears out. Oh, man, yeah. He walks away, just continues in his sin. It's like, oh, man, I saw, I saw, I saw Mikey at the altar. I didn't know Mikey was a Christian. Mm -hmm. Another assumption. Then you got the other one that walks around for a while with the big Bible and all that stuff, maybe even does a lot of Christian things. But their heart isn't there. And later on, they leave. They might even have ministry. And when they leave, people are like, what happened? Why did he walk away? What pulled him away? And then they'll find out, oh, he was hanging out with Jack from the corner over there. It's like, yo, Christians, don't hang out with Jack because he'll pull you out of the kingdom. It's like, no, yeah. don't hang out with Jack because Jack is sinful and bad company corrupts good character. But we're not saying God isn't powerful enough to keep you if you're a Christian. God warns you not to get mixed up with the wrong character. God warns you not to entertain evil or to approve of it. Love doesn't do that, doesn't rejoice in evil. But that's not going to eliminate your salvation. So there has to be a right balance. It has to be the teaching saying, don't do evil because God not because salvation could be lost. Right. Because God should be honored, but they teach it wrong. They're saying, don't go there, why? Because you'll lose it. Instead of saying, well, isn't God there? Isn't he able? He is able. Isn't he willing? He is willing. Yeah. So why do we keep doing this? Because we're terrified of losing something, and, and we keep thinking that it depends on us. So it might start with good intentions. Terrible, terrible exegesis, terrible exposition of Scripture has to be accomplished for that sort of belief to be propagated. And it, it ruins, it upsets the faith of some. It really does. Like it, it ruins some people's experience or some people's actual manifestation of their faith. Like they begin to live like crippled legalistic Christians because now they have to do this and this and this and this and this or else they'll lose it. So now everything they do, even though they might love God, the reason they're doing it to that degree might be unnatural. They might be doing what we've seen. Got the preacher saying, I need five people to give up $100 for the offering. First off, what manipulation tactics are used there? I hate that. Mm -hmm. But you got people that are saying, I don't want to, but then I'm not supposed to live for me. I'm supposed to live for Christ, and I have to be sacrificial. But I really don't want to, and this might actually hurt me financially because I don't got this much, and I got mm -hmm. a bill. But God should provide. He would provide, and I have to. Like, all this goes on. But the scriptures say, give as God has already put in your heart. Yeah. And if somebody might bring that out naturally saying, hey, we have a need. If someone has something to give or can, this is the need. And if you got something welling up in your heart, give freely. Let, you, let your hands rejoice in giving. Yeah. But if you're being like told like, hey, you need to or else, like don't be selfish. It's not, that's not how the scripture says it at all. That's not what Paul says in the New Testament. So some people could be compelled with the wrong reasons to do probably a good thing, but they don't have their heart in this. So they're trying to expect some sort of benefit or mm -hmm. kind of big ups from God. It's like all of this, all of this can take place when people are teaching major doctrines wrong. And that's why I think it's important to talk about it. Yeah. A lot of people see the, uh, there's a verse and, and I can't remember 
where it is, but they use um, uh, it's in Malachi, uh, where it says, um, and I can't remember exactly what it says, but the I think it's Malachi three ten. Says bring bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and put me to the test now in this, says the Lord of armies. If I do not open for you the window of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it it, it overflows. And people use that to manipulate people to give yeah. an excessive amount of money, um, and it, it it's always bothered me. It's always now there were times where I would I would hear that and and it really would be pressed on me, um, because it it wasn't going maybe it was going to the organization or there was an actual need and I said you know what I do have two hundred dollars to give. Because I didn't have bills at the time, I didn't have a mortgage, I didn't have a phone, I didn't have anything. You lived at parents. House. I lived at my parents' house. You know, I I wasn't eating maruchan every day you know? <laughs> <laughs> to survive. I wasn't feeding my dogs maruchan. Like, uh, so I would freely give, and and I and I said, yeah, glory to God, I can I can I can help provide for this need. Yeah. Um, recently, there was a, a at our church, a family's house got burned down, and they lost everything. Hmm. So. My wife and I set out to give something, and and I'm actually still waiting to hear from the pastor about that, um, because there's multiple items that they need, and the church got together and we provided for them. Glory to God, right? It wasn't, you know, I, I didn't see anybody posted on Facebook. Oh, today I gave a yeah. brand new stove to these hermanos, you know. Hashtag humble type yeah. of deal, you know. <laughs> hashtag <laughs> it too. <laughs> yeah, if you hashtag humble, you've just you're not humble. Just change the word. Yeah. Just mumble. Just it's not mumble. humble. <laughs> but but people use this verse to say, oh, well, if I give, I know I don't have enough for the rent, but I'm going to give, and, and God is going to give back to me. And that doesn't happen. And then what? You know, yeah. you, you've lost. Because somebody said, give, and God will, and God will yeah. give you back for sure. For sure. Yeah. A hundredfold. Yeah. And, and people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't get a twofold. And they only get a if that and there's times there's times God really does incredibly provide and we're oh, grateful yeah. for that. I think the problem is um, when when you teach a definite outcome where God does not give a definite outcome, you you misapply Scripture. So even though God does take care of His own, He protects mm-hmm. His people. Somehow I, I've seen here's one possible circumstance. It's not necessarily that you get an another check. Uh, that just would be weird. Like where does it? Like, we know God provides, but seriously, where did it, like, right? what's the logistics of this? Um, did my boss just mispay me, and now I'm going to have to pay back later? But you'll have, like, people out of nowhere just saying, you know what, I was praying, and then uh, God just put something in my heart, and I felt like calling you and asking if there's anything you need. And then out of nowhere, it's like, you have no idea, like, legit, I need this. And it just seems like God is well, uniting people it, with their needs. And I'll, uh, and I'll share it. And I've had it to where um, when I first moved out of my parents' house, there was a time where I, w- I didn't have a job. My roommate didn't either, and we had like this three hundred dollar uh, electric bill to pay. Mm-hmm. We were scratching our heads trying to come up with all this money. Uh, I think a week later we checked the account, and it was completely zero. Mm-hmm. You know, there was really, and we checked the statement. Uh, nothing was paid to it. It was just so. I don't know if it, it would have been a mistake from the company. I don't know if God put in his banking account information or <laughs> or what, right? But. In that time, I looked at him and I said, hey, glory to God, because we didn't know how we were going to pay this, and now it's not even there. Mm-hmm. Like, he was trying to f- he, he was trying to figure out if I secretly paid for it, 
I'm like, I don't even have a job. Like, <laughs> I can barely make my car payment right now. I, I, I did not dish out $300. Yeah. Um, so I, I see the times where God provides for his people. And, and, and it's not that he provides a brand new Mercedes for you. You know, he did, he's not going to provide a brand new BMW or mm-hmm. a brand new house. Um, so it's like when I see people post, uh, God provided a, a brand new BMW for me. Glory to God. And then what happens when you can't pay that bill? Yeah. Like, like what happened then? Right. So God can provide a brand new car, but he can't provide the payment. Mm-hmm. Like don't give, don't give false glory mm-hmm. to God because now you're making him out to be a liar. Well, if it's a brand new car, then is that payment more reasonable than something that might have been kind of a little bit less luxurious? And what does that take away from you as far as giving now? Right. Sometimes I think that's a good way to consider like, hey, this will this take away from being an actual blessing and mm-hmm. being able to actually take care of some sort of needs around me? Because if, if you look at it and say, you know, financially, I can't afford this, but now there's $100 or $200 less a month that I can do anything else with. And who knows? I might find out there's a need. But yeah. I got this big fat car payment because I just wanted a nice car. Yeah. It's like, you might not have greatly necessarily sinned against God in this obvious way, like, oh, I've said bad words or I'm living obviously evil. But you might have literally taken the providence of the job and said, I'm just going to tack this all into myself. Yeah. It's kind of like storing up treasures for yourself here. Like, that stuff's going to go away. But wouldn't it be better to store treasures in heaven? Yeah. And the biblical answer is yes. yes. That isn't like a, yeah. hey, you know, maybe it's like, no, that's, it's Let me better. wave my options. Yeah. Which one's better? The Bible never gives you an idea of saying, you know, it's nice to store up treasures. He's, he's, Jesus literally is saying, store up where nobody can take away. No mm-hmm. moth, no vermin. Just like... um. As, as we're mentioning heaven, um, we have, where is it? Oh, I think I opened that verse twice. We have in First Peter um, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, this is talking about how heaven basically is kept. Um, verses 3 to 5 say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This is talking about salvation. You got salvation, it's an inheritance, it's not going to perish, it doesn't break, it doesn't get old or moldy, and it's reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this this inheritance, this heavenly abode, is kept in heaven for us. It's protected. It's mm-hmm. there. And it's we are protected from falling away, from losing it by the power of God through faith. Not the power of God through deeds, not the power of God through our own consistency, the power of God through faith. We are literally kept by God's power. And if he's not powerful enough to keep us, then I don't know what on earth we're going to rely on. Like, if we're going to say, yeah, I know we're kept by the power of God, but we really have to try hard. It's like, you should be trying hard in your heart and life to be obeying because you should be crazy, thankful, and grateful to God for his sacrifice of Christ. 
there should be this overwhelming desire to do better every day Mm -hmm. because of God. Not to do better to try to impress God or to try to win extra brownie points. We're talking about God has already done this great thing for me and he's involved now. I don't want to walk around as if that isn't the reality. It's like I don't think a Christian should be able to walk around without the constant conviction and regular workings of the Holy Spirit in his heart and life. They could maybe grow dull for a period. They can grow stupid for a period, like David with Bathsheba. Stupid. Really stupid. Like, how do you get to a point where you're no longer going out to war, where you should be there, and now you're back here gazing at the wife of one of your greatest soldiers, Mm -hmm. one of your 30, like 30 top soldiers, that was that was his wife. How how do you get to that point? What kind of complacency in your spiritual life? Like where were you in scripture? Where were you in the reading of the law? When, when you were able later on to pen one nine Psalm one nineteen, where was that David? That David was not there. There was a complacent David that was just I don't know what, but he should have been out there. He wasn't. That's 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 what a Christian could do. Could get caught up in laziness, caught up in something. Just stop participating in what he should be doing, and and then gets gets trapped, gets trapped by his own lust, gets trapped by his own power, his own greed, his own adulterous heart, and perform the most unbelievable of sins. Not just taking a woman, not just just overpowering her with his own glory of kingness, maybe bringing her to succumb to his authority breaking her marital vows, violating her own husband by sleeping with David, then getting pregnant, and then he goes and covers all that up with murder. Yeah. And this is this is how bad a Christian could get. And that is not an encouragement saying, hey, you can go kill. Just repent. You, you cannot be someone that commits to making evil choices like premeditated and think that that's acceptable to God or that even shows or describes your faith that actually more than anything describes your Mm non-faith. If anyone can say, David did it so I can plan to, it doesn't show that David planned to do it. That's not how the text is written. The text is written as David got himself caught up willfully in his own complacency, which led to all these horrible decisions. These weren't plans. It doesn't say that David planned to... The only thing he planned is to accomplish his sexual desire, which was wrong. He was adulterous. He planned. He saw. He liked. He even asked about her. And then he planned to have her come over. He didn't plan to kill. He just was responding to all the wrong choices he's made. If someone says, like, you know what? I'm going to go and party and probably sleep with somebody. And Sunday is going to come around. I'm going to pray real hard. It's like, you might not make it to Sunday. But your life and endeavors look like you have no God in your life. So you are putting yourself in a very dangerous position for yourself and you're dishonoring God even with those plans of your heart. Let the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, said David. Like, let the plans that I have, let the stuff that I imagine to do, let that be pleasant to you. Don't don't let me get caught up in, 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 in pre-planned sin. That's David's prayer. That should be our prayer. But over here we have that we're protected by God's power, which is powerful enough to keep us. And, and that's the same protection that gives us this, this inheritance in heaven. And just like Jesus said, it is good 
to have things stored up in heaven. Matthew six nineteen to 21, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if God is proclaiming to us that our, our eternal life is reserved in heaven for us, it, it seems that according to Christ's words, that's the best place for anything to be. That's the best place for our endeavors, our goals, our, our achievements, our praise. Let it be in heaven. Let the works that we do, let the things that we do be aiming for heaven because that's where no one can take it away. If all you've got in your whole life can be summarized on a plaque on your wall here on earth, then you're going to have nothing to boast about, nothing to be excited about in heaven. You haven't invested your life in surrendering and walking with God faithfully. You're going to have nobody that has come to Christ because of your life. You're going to have no beneficial heavenly influences that you've poured out into people's hearts and lives because of your relationship, because all you cared about was how big that certificate was on mm-hmm. your wall. Like Some people invest so much in something that could be crashed, like so much. And it's fine if you, if you, for some reason, have the ability and maybe opportunity to be a, to be a car enthusiast, you can. But if that is making you a completely fruitless Christian because all your money and time goes into that, then you're not doing what the Bible says because the Bible says don't love this world. Now, you can like this world, some things in it, but if you are endeavoring to totally invest your time and if it, uh, uh, energy, benefits, all that stuff into this world, something that could literally be eliminated. Do you realize how how empty your satchel will be in heaven? Now, yeah. I'm not saying heaven's going to be this empty experience, yeah. but there is such thing as a degree of investment. There's a degree of sacrifice, and there's a variation there where, where some people do more, some people do less. I just thought that was really important to say. Yeah, and, and that's where a lot of uh, legalism can be built up, and um, you see it in the in the, in the with the Hebrews, uh, where God gave them laws, and the Jews added more laws and bylaws and bylaws yeah. because if they don't get to these laws, then they're not going to get they're not going to mess up God's law. Mm-hmm. But that is the danger of adding on and and explaining it wrong and and you, you build up legalism, which is not not what God intended when He brought us to His word. So, so to me, what 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 is the what is the advice? What what is the what do we give them to say? Hey, uh, um, stand firm in your faith. God's got you covered. Mm-hmm. Like if if He started the work, He's gonna finish the work. You're He's gonna bring you to the end. Yeah, He's gonna persevere you. And it's like what Paul was telling Timothy uh, in in First Timothy four sixteen. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to the teachings. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. It's not that if, if Timothy paid close attention to the scriptures, he's going to be the way. He's he, But he's modeling this mm-hmm. for them, because as you said before, he was an, an up-and-coming pastor, young in his ways. He had older people who, who were going to more than likely say, you're young. What are you? What are you gonna teach me? Yeah. You know, I've had that before. It's like I've been in, I've been in Christ for fifty years. What do you have to teach me, young, young one? Like, you know, I was like, well, uh, I'm not gonna teach you anything, but the scriptures will. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and it's like in, in the book of Acts, uh, 
chapter two, all the way at the end, where those who were being added daily were, were what they did was they stuck to the teachings of the apostles in the scriptures every day. Mm-hmm. Why? Because this is this is their life. Yeah, this is where you're gonna learn. Uh, uh, to know your God, to know who He is, to know what He wants, to you're gonna love Him through this Word. Persevere in the end. Remain in the Scripture. There, there are many times where I've had the conversation with with hermanos and hermanas, and with myself even I've had this conversation where I I I fear at times when I sin, and it causes such a sorrow with me, and I say, Lord, why? Like, really, this guy? Yeah. Like, you've got other people who love you way more than I do. And, and maybe that's a wrong thing to say, but at least it seems that way because they're sticking to it a lot harder than I am. And, and, and but somebody, somebody led me to this verse one day, and I want to share it. It's in Deuteronomy 7. Because the question arises, why, why would you love me? I'm a wretched sinner. I, I, I mess up. I, I, I sin willingly. Well, why do you love me, God? And he gives us the answer. And it's in, in Deuteronomy 7. Uh, we'll start with verse 6. And it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his personal possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. The Lord didn't the Lord did not make you his beloved, nor choose you, because you were greater in number than any of the people, since you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath with which the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God loves you because he chose to love you. And that's it. There's nothing that you're going to do. There's nothing that you're going to provide. There's nothing that you're going to do. It's, you know, a lot of times love is conditional when it comes to humanity. Mm -hmm. It's, um, if I can get this out of you, yeah, my loyalty is for you. My love is for you. But once you mess, mess, mess up my, my trust for you, that's it. I'm done with you. That's not how it is with God. We grieve him when we sin. We we mess up and it causes us sorrow, but he has given us an inheritance. He has given us a promise. He is faithful to his word. Even when we're not, we mess up all the time. We, 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 we suck, man. Like, I like to put it plainly, we, we, we are terrible people. But God chose to love us simply because he wanted to love us. We're, we're the sheep of God. I mean, the Bible keeps calling us sheep, and God didn't do that by accident. I don't see him doing anything by accident. But if someone just investigates what it takes to take care of a sheep, you got to take care of the whole animal all day. That animal will walk off a cliff and every single buddy behind him would just follow him off the cliff. That animal is so strange. I feel like God made it just for the perfect example of giving an analogy of how weak we are. If that thing for some reason trips, stumbles and rolls over onto its back, I don't there's a term for it. That thing will die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's so so unable 
to take care of itself. If it can't like kick and roll itself back over, it will literally sit there and and like cry out, cry out until uh, something comes and eats it or it just literally dies. Mm -hmm. That thing can get lost. And if it gets lost by itself, all this wool, well, all of its stuff will grow out so much that it ends up carrying like 40 extra pounds on itself, just ruining itself, covered its stuff, all, all these dirt and all the stuff getting stuck in it that that sheep will not even be able to see because the wool will grow mm -hmm. over its eyes that sheep absolutely needs the care it has no defense qualities i don't know if they can bite they probably can't but they <laughs> they are not attack animals they are cowards they can't even defend themselves they absolutely need a defense yeah it is the perfect analogy of a Christian. Mm -hmm. If a Christian thinks I'm the strong sheep, what do you mean? Yeah. That's like hashtag humble. Like, what do you mean? How can you boast of humility? How can you boast uh, of being something you're not? Paul said, you know, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses because that's what I got. Yeah. got plenty of those. Anyone that takes uh, opportunity to boast of any of their strengths, just at that moment, in that thought, in that purpose, God has not favored that. I've never seen God prosper what I might be doing ministerially or what I'm doing if I've ever had a boastful thought. Usually that brings me feelings of guilt and conviction. Usually it's right before, right after that, if I, in my head, boast about something, I'm, I'm just slipping up and stumbling. And I'm like, my goodness, what? What? And then when I come to God and I recognize and, and have nothing but my own brokenness to confess, that's usually when the most real conversations happen with people. The most natural outflow of evangelism takes place. It's when I'm completely destitute. Mm -hmm. Like I get in an argument with my wife. I'm wrong. I'm stubborn. And while I'm trying to figure out how to not do that again because I'm, I'm so foolish, I, I have confession before God, I, I, I've tried to reconcile my wife, and, and I'm still disappointed about my actions that's when someone comes up to the door and the most realist conversation takes place at least to me it feels the most realist but there's no force i have absolutely no pride left in that yeah. moment i'm like I, I have the most sincere evangelism coming out of my mouth and i just feel broken and yet i want so badly for this person to be saved yeah it's like i got nothing left in me i just i just offended my wife because i i said something insensitively or whatnot it's like i'm the woman i love and i was a jerk I have nothing to boast of in front of this person, and yet I want them to be saved. I see that that humility that God leads us into, showing us our sinfulness, bringing up his favor because he leads us to confess it, and then he works with us. But I don't see ever someone standing on a pedestal in their own mind mm -hmm. and then God's favor on that. I just don't see it in Scripture. I don't, I don't see it practically speaking. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Um, tell you... Uh, <laughs> This just happened with, with my wife and I. Uh, we were talking about something, and we were arguing a little bit, and and she uh, uh, she swings a, a, like clothes at me or something, and it hits me. And I'm like, why did you hit me? She's like, well, you were doing this. So I get upset, and I go to the restroom just to wash my face. And now I feel bad because I was in the wrong, and I'm like, and I'm I'm kind of praying. I'm like, but she hit me, and then it's just kind of like, but you were commanded to love her. I never commanded her to love you. You gotta love her, the way that I love my church. And I'm like, oh man, I'm like yeah, I was wrong. I was wrong. So I go, oh, like, hey babe, hey babe, how are you? How's it going? <laughs> oh man. Well, I'm glad you sorted that out. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> did you? So, did you, did you take it out for a treat? Uh, <laughs> still, still on your bucket list. I, I, I've been taking her out every day <laughs> since, since then. <laughs> uh, the perseverance yeah. of the saints, beautiful thing that we have no control over because it's all God. Yeah, nothing to do with us. He loves us because he loves us. Showed it by sending his son to die for us. Taking the full punishment. Taking the wrath of God for us. I mean, he took an eternity of wrath for his for each of his elect in three hours. Figure that one out. Yeah. You know? But he did it out of love for his own. To me, that's like, man. I, I'm willing, you know, I say a lot. Um, I'll take a bullet for you, but just one. <laughs> you know? That's it. That's it. Just one. But God, man, but the son took the entire wrath of God for that was reserved for me upon himself. No. Like, and, and it, it blows me away. It humbles me. It brings me to, to his feet in tears in in repentance and worship and that's all that i want my life to be because of it you know i mess up sometimes i sin willingly sometimes um a lot of times actually but the fact that i come to him and 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 the holy spirit comforts me in this forgiveness it it's an immense it's an immense feeling for sure so the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, it was, it's an exposition of 17th century Reformed theology, and it was completed in 1647. And chapter 17 talks about the perseverance of the saints. There's a lot of doctrines they cover. They cover the assurance of salvation. They cover how salvation happens, the, uh, the sinfulness of man. It, it gives a lot of great broad explanations with with scripture that they've compiled and i mean these these guys needed to explain like what is the christian faith and what's what's right what's wrong uh what are they departing from when they depart from roman catholicism what are they keeping because it's still biblical even if it was taught wrongly what what is what is the right thing so this section here i think is really useful if we consider it chapter 17 it's titled of the perseverance of the saints and there's three points the first one says they whom god hath accepted in his beloved effectually called and sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved point two says this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will but upon the immutability of the the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of god the father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of jesus christ the abiding of the spirit and the seed of god within them and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof and then point three nevertheless they may through the temptations of satan and of the world the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein whereby they incur god's displeasure and grieve his holy spirit come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts having their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded 
hurt, and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. I think that's a great way to describe perseverance, just yeah. in those three points. There's a lot more that we can benefit from. There's even scripture that backs these ideas and concepts up. But yes, you can damage your experience of the grace of God. You can damage how your witness goes out into the world by your behavior. You can damage your own sanctification, your growth in that faithfulness because of willfully or ignorantly choosing or uh, sin or neglecting the means of grace. Reading the Word of God, studying Him, meditating, communing with the saints, partaking of the Lord's Supper, practicing these basic uh, togetherness with the rest of the church, ministering together, evangelizing, reaching out, testifying, confessing your sin. We're not talking about a pope. We're talking about confess it to God because he's the one that you relate to first and most and at all times. But if there's a brother or sister, someone that helps you to grow in your faith, that might be the person to open up. They might work you through and counsel you. They might be there to pray for your direct needs. All of these things, when Christians neglect the things they should be doing, or they do the things they shouldn't be doing, they damage or they could harm or lock themselves up in a bad position, a dishonorable one to God. It could affect their prayer life, it could make them feel depressed and upset, but it doesn't eliminate their salvation. And I think that's the point that we have to get across. Your salvation is not deprived from you at some point if you do something that you shouldn't do. But that's not a license to sin. Ever, never, ever. And if anyone ever teaches that way, they're teaching it wrong. Absolutely. That's why Paul had to say, just because grace, that doesn't mean sin. That idea talks about perseverance. Paul is talking about a perseverance that is eternal. And that's why people would come up with an argument probably saying, huh, grace, I can sin. Paul was responding to a lot of their false ideas saying, hey, just because this grace and in context, in the idea, you can say, is eternal. That doesn't mean you can now sin. How can you sin if you've been cleaned and washed? So we, we, have to, we have to understand this concept. It's not wrong to teach the eternity of salvation. That doesn't make Christians sin. Christians sin because Christians are still sinners. Yeah. They're, they're saved because God is graceful. They're not saved because they're good. They're not saved because they made good enough promises or they were good enough. They don't stay saved because they're strong enough through all the scripture that we've covered. They stay saved because they're kept by the power of God through faith. They stay saved because no one can snatch them out of the hands of Jesus Christ or the Father. They're saved and they continue because Jesus said he's not going to lose any that the Father has given him. They are like so uninvolved in that part of the decision of salvation but they are involved in the interrelationship between them and God, which is only made possible through the shed blood of Jesus mm -hmm. Christ. So they get something they couldn't have got. Now that they have it, they're, they're given some responsibility in how they manage and maintain it. But even that is brought about through the grace of God. So all of this is a work of God, and we are made responsible for how we react now that we can react to God. And he has his ears open to our prayers because we're no longer sinners without God. We're now sinners that have God and are had by God. So just managing this explanation right, managing the scriptures correctly, it won't bring people to teach, oh, don't sin or else you'll lose it. 
They might not lose it, but I just don't want them to sin. That's not healthy or biblical. That doesn't give God any honor. You're not helping God out. Yeah. If he really wanted to say that, he'd say, you, Christian, can lose your salvation. Believer, you who are now washed and cleaned can now go to condemnation. But every single time in Scripture that it warns, it's always warning about um, hypocrites showing their true colors. Or Christians getting caught up in bad things. That'll mess them up. But it's never saying you can lose your salvation. Every single part in Scripture that talks about it, it's always a warning because there's going to be non-Christians mixed with Christians. There's going to be Christians that can take a bad example and follow it and end up dishonoring God or grieving the Spirit. But we can't imagine that if we have a right teaching of who God is. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. There are just a few references when it ever even looks like it's an it. But ultimately, it's always a he. Mm -hmm. He's the one that's deciding. He's distributing gifts. He's the one that is sanctifying. He's the one that's convicting the world. He's the one that wrote scripture everywhere in scripture. He is a person, not a human person, but he's a person. He's got a center of knowledge or ability or interrelationship capabilities. He is that. And yet, we can't imagine. It would just be silly to imagine that the holy God of the universe is toyed with in such a way that someone can get him to come upon and into his heart and then be kicked out because yeah. of sin and then one apology and he's running back mm-hmm. in. We can't imagine that. That just seems so trivial. This is salvation. Once you have someone in your heart or something ruling over your heart, only someone or something more powerful can kick it out. That's why Jesus gave that story saying, you know, you can't break into a house unless you first take over. The strong man has to be bound and then you can come in. Yeah. Are we saying that someone or something is more powerful than the Holy Spirit of God who, right. who literally hovered over the waters in the very beginning? We can't be saying that. We have to understand no one is more powerful than God. Greater is he that is in you. Yeah. than he that is in the world. Yeah. No one can separate you from the love of God. No devil, no demon, nothing. So it's not about being separated from God eternally if you're a believer. It's about damaging your relationship with him, dishonoring him, and, and not giving glory like you should and could want to and should want to if your heart has been regenerated. Now you want God and you want his commands. Right. There's a lot in scripture that if people would just take time to read it all and continue to read it, they'd grow uh, they'd learn they'd find confidence in god and they i think anyone that grows more in the grace of the lord i don't i don't i don't see them finding sin tasteful so if if a christian is growing if someone is studying more and more scripture even studying some of these ba- basic uh, and well-known church documents i don't see how they can find comfort in sin they can find comfort in god despite their sin but they don't find comfort in the sin the sin becomes more and more ugly as they come closer and closer to god so there shouldn't be a fear that hearing that you can't lose your salvation is going to make you more sinful it might show hypocrites to be more hypocritical but true christians have a indwelling spirit of god who isn't powered up by your obedience he's alive and well even if when you die like we don't turn the Holy Spirit on by being faithful. Your faithfulness is a result of the grace that's being worked in your heart. 
So everything following can be affected, but it's not powered by you. We're not in charge of the Holy Spirit. He really isn't a light switch that if you yell loud or sing loud or scream loud, or like some churches teach, then the Holy Spirit's going to come. It's like, if you're, if you're already praising God, <laughs> the Spirit was there first and foremost. And he's among the saints. So he's, per, he's, he's sanctifying, he's permeating the entire church. He's keeping the church together. He is the living God. You don't bring the Holy Spirit as if he didn't bring you to church in the first place. Sometimes people have the idea that, you know, sing louder or God won't come. It's like, wh where is he not? Yeah. <laughs> Please tell me. So, um, yeah, I appreciate going through this. I think this is pertinent. And some people who don't understand it, they can have a really damaged Christian life or a very ignorant one. So we just hope this is a blessing for you guys. Let us know if there's a topic that might be on the horizon for you guys or something that might be um, eating away at your own heart or maybe something that you don't know if it's been taught right, uh, we'd be happy to go into detail because we have the scriptures. So we know where to get all of our facts, all of our statements, all of our explanations. And hopefully we can use that to kind of bringing a clear and dis distinguished answer so that you can stand on that as your faith. God bless you guys. This is the Milk and Meat Podcast, and we will catch you next time. Because I've been worried about your soul. Why you still be yelling you got a soul? Like you need to see to believe these things. But you believe things that you've never seen. The feelings and hopes and dreams. The future emotions and gravity. And sadly.